Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on cage.press.com. I'm Dana Cooper Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. The UFC may be off this week, but that does not mean that we are today. We are breaking down the road to the UFC live from Shanghai this weekend. They got four five-fight fight cards, and we're going to be breaking down our favorite prospects on that as part of the combat countdown. And we're going to be talking to a couple of fighters. First, I'm going to be talking to John Castaneda, who fights next weekend at UFC Vegas 74. And then later on in the show, I'm going to be talking to Mark Clamaco, who is actually fighting at the road to the UFC this weekend. Before we get to any of that great content, I do have to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Game Up Hard Hydration. Welcome to the game. Welcome to Game Up Hard Hydration, the ready-to-drink beverage with the sports drink flavor for adult drink fun. But make no mistake, this is no sports drink. This is a refreshing adult beverage with 4.9% alcohol by volume and a special blend of electrolytes and way more than a hint of flavor. A drink that's very well drinkable. Should you stretch before drinking it? Sure couldn't hurt. Game Up is not a hard seltzer because hard seltzers just don't work out. Game Up plays in an entirely new league of its own. It comes in all your favorite sports drink flavors, orange, lemon, lime, fruit punch, and grape, and it hits all the right numbers with 110 calories, 1 gram of carbs. It's gluten-free, and it's got no added sugar. Game Up is for MMA maulers, urban fitness freaks, peak-bagging badasses, tough mother mothers, beer league brawlers, hot yoga hotties, high handicap hackers, committed cornhole huckers, or even just professional poolside posers who game up and get after it. Ask for Game Up wherever you get your beer or hard seltzer and bring it on home for the team. Game Up brings you this episode of the Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and it starts right now. The hosts are ready. The fighters are ready. Listeners, make some noise if you are ready for Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. All right, and joining me today is John Castaneda, who fights Mateus Mendonca at UFC Vegas 74. That fight is on June 3rd. So, John, before we get into all the good stuff, before we get into talking about fighting, I'm a collector of MMA nickname stories and knowing where they come from. And I've been wondering for quite a long time <laughs> when and how you became the Sexy Maxi. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, first and foremost, thanks a lot for taking the time to uh, get, get to me on this interview. Um, sexy Mexi though, that comes from my, my college days. So I'm sure you've heard of like the, uh, freshman 15, right? You know, you go to college, you, you gain a little bit of weight. So it was a very similar story for me. I went to college at Mankato state or Minnesota state university, Mankato down South in Minnesota. And, uh, I probably, instead of like a freshman 15, I think I got like a freshman 30, maybe freshman 35. <laughs> and, uh, it was uh it was at that time that I started training uh martial arts new team down in Mankato and my current or I'm sorry, not my current, but my previous uh Thai coach, Ray White, who runs the program down there in Mankato. So I go I go to him thirty five pounds heavier than I normally am, right? And uh immediately, you know, within a few months of training my freshman year of college, you know, I'm just a little kid, eighteen years old, um, I start to lose like just some drastic weight. And I I I figured I knew I was gonna lose it regardless, you know, it was just the luxury of having that all you can eat buffet of, uh, of the cafeteria, you know, freshman year, whatever, whatever. And I started to lose weight pretty drastically. I think I went down from like 
195 down to like 155, 160, something like that. And one day he was just calling, he was just telling me like, wow, John, like you look a ton better than you, when you first came in, you're looking pretty sexy. And then he, one day he just called me sexy Mexi. And since then it was like, I'm going to use that as my nickname. <laughs> I dig it. I dig it. Now you said, you know, back in when you were 18 years old, you were just a kid, but if you look at your record, that that's actually not that far from when you started fighting, you know, as an amateur and then shortly after as a professional, right? You're only like 20, 21 years old. How, how did you get into fighting so young? Yeah, so I actually started training uh, mixed martial arts and jiu-jitsu in high school. So I was uh, obviously my transition is just from like the wrestling, um, you know, a lot of wrestlers who turn to mixed martial arts. Uh, so I wrestled all throughout middle school, high school. I wrestled my freshman year of college. And uh, I actually opted out of wrestling for the wrestling team just to pursue MMA. So I got a little taste of mixed martial arts in uh, in college as well. Basically, I, I just got invited to the Mankato Martial Arts, um, the gym down there on Victory Drive, and then uh, got a couple of training sessions in. And I was like, wow, I really dig this. I, I love uh, I love this. It's wrestling plus punching people in the face. So I was like, you know what? I think I'm done with wrestling, and I'm going to just focus on uh, mixed martial arts. And uh, it was after it was shortly after that, yeah, that I started uh, competing amateurly, and I had a um, a long amateur career, but within a, just a short amount of time. You know, there was some months, uh, some years where I was fighting, you know, six times a year. I remember one month fighting three times in one month. I fought the third, the twenty third, and then the first of that next month, and I was like, damn, that's that's crazy. I don't know. Obviously, I think things are a little bit different now. Um, with like commissions and suspensions and stuff like that. But I do know that I fought for this uh, promotion called tri-state cage fighting. So I kind of like bounced around through States. So any, even if I did get any like automatic suspensions, just because I competed, it really didn't apply because it was in a different state. I kind of, you know, <laughs> I kind of did that route. So yeah, I, I kept busy amateur. I got a lot of, a lot of uh, experience in my amateur career. Actually, more than you can probably find online. I had 17 amateur fights total. Um, so 16, 16 wins, one loss. And yeah. And then shortly after that, I turned professional and uh, still at Mankato martial arts is where I turned professional. And then I eventually made the move up North to the Academy, which is where I still am. That That's amazing. Yeah, no, they definitely have got way less on you in the tapology quarters of the world than, uh, than 17 fights. So then I got to ask too, then like, you know, your journey to the UFC is not like a lot of people's journey, right? Like sometimes you see those people with like 17, 18 amateur fights and they get signed to the UFC at Fort Ophano or you know, you're just barely out of being a professional. And then you see those guys who had no amateur career and they spent, you know, maybe the amount of time you did as a pro. But you don't usually see people with both and people who, you know, you fought Gustavo Lopez, you fought Chris Beale, you know, you fought Marcelo Rojo. You, I mean, like guys who would wind up being in the UFC too. What what is it like for you to now be achieving it? I mean, you're only 31, but like after that long of a period of time. Yeah, so I think for me it was it was a little bit not I wouldn't say disheartening, but I my goal was always because I knew how active I was. I my goal was always to be in the UFC before I was 25 or at 25. Um, I think I got into the UFC when I was 28, maybe 20 late 27, 28. So it was a little bit past when I, when I would have anticipated and liked, but um, no, I completely agree with you. I think that I think for a moment there, I was like, man, what do I got to do to get in? I, you know, even after the contender series, which 
by all means was not my best performance. You know, I got the win, but I was, I remember I was uh, fighting, I was fighting during that fight, Shaden Lealoha. I fought him with a really bad injured knee, but you know, I, I looked at it as like, okay, this is my opportunity to get, you know, to accomplish my dreams, get in the UFC. Like, doesn't matter if I'm hurt or not, like I'm going to fight. Cause I didn't know if I was going to get that opportunity again. So I fought, you know, I, I got the win. It was a kind of a poopy performance. And I was at that point, I think I was like nine wins in a row. And I was like, man, what do I got to do to get in there? So a little bit disheartening, but you know, I, I wouldn't trip for the world. I, I I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot. Um, even just through this past year, I've, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons, so it's been great. Yeah. And I wanted to talk to you about those lessons too, because I'm, I'm going to ask you a question about maybe not your favorite part of your career, but you know, you're, you're coming off of your first loss in a really long time, right? Because you, you had rattled off back-to-back wins. You, you know, you knocked out Eddie Wineland, you tapped out Miles Johns, like big names in the sport too. Uh, and, and then you just had this tough fight with Daniel Santos where, you know, you're clearly winning early on, you know, you're putting a beating on him kind of early and then it kind of slips away from you. So what were your, your big takeaways from that fight with Daniel Santos? Yeah. So I think the biggest takeaways from that fight were kind of like some of the bigger life changes that I made too. So, um, up until last year of November, I was actually working full time. I was working 45 hours a week. And I was training full-time as well. So probably another 35 hours a week. So between the two, you know, 80 hours a week, um, it was also a job where it was uh, late shift. So I was getting done at 4 a.m., sometimes 5 a.m., and then sleeping very minimally and trying to wake up for pro team practice at 10 o'clock or 9.30 in the morning, you know, running off of four hours of sleep and trying to balance those two and trying to, you know, still be able to perform and practice at a high level, recover at a high level, you know, all those things. I, I think that the biggest thing I took away from that fight is that I can't be juggling two things like that at once. Um, I think that that fight was a, um, a big testament as to what I was trying to do between juggling those two. The reason I say that is because I actually fought with a upper respiratory infection. Um, the reason I don't, you know, I'm not much for for excuses, hats off to Daniel Santos, but the day after that fight, so three weeks prior to that fight, I had strep throat. So I was on antibiotics all the way up until eight days out from my fight, which is actually the reasoning behind the catch weight. The antibiotics that I was on um, were just retaining a lot of water, way more water than I usually, uh, than I'm usually holding on to throughout camp. And I was running a little bit heavy. So I asked for that catch weight. Luckily he agreed to it. Um, I had the fight with Daniel Santos, felt really good right away, but within minutes of uh, the actual competition, I felt a really, really, really like sharp burn in my lungs, um, shortness of breath. And I was just like, okay, well, let's get through it regardless. You know, I went, I fought till the end, but uh, what really alarmed me was after the fight, after the fight, I was like, I couldn't recover. I still felt like that, that sharpness in my, in my chest, um, sore throat. And so I went to the doctor that very next day on Sunday morning to the urgent care. And sure enough, I, I was fighting a upper respiratory infection. So um, the reason what I like to tell myself is the reason why I was always sick, why I was always injured, why I wasn't recovering like I should. My immune system wasn't as high is because I was trying to balance these two things, these two full-time jobs. So uh, what I did was in uh, late last year or uh, middle of November, I left that job. Um, about a month later, I went to Thailand for three months and kind of just refocused myself. Where, you know, I, I went over to train at Bangtao, 
Muay Thai and MMA with the Hickman brothers and Alex Shields and Woody and all those guys. And I spent a good three months there and kind of recentered myself, refocused, re relearned what it meant to be a full-time athlete and uh, kind of came back to Minnesota, finished my camp and, and kind of implemented those, that lifestyle that I picked up in Thailand and those really good habits too. That's awesome. Now I, I'm got to ask out of curiosity, is that, because I usually ask, what, what do you do with the fight of the night bonus? Is that what we did with the fight of the night bonus? It, it went to uh, to making a, a long trip? <laughs> uh, I, w- I would say yes or no. It definitely helped. You know, um, I've always, my entire life, I've been very, very frugal with my money. And I, actually, that was kind of the reason why it was so hard to leave this full-time job. You know, it was it was, it was was really good money. And, and I just, I, I grew up poor. So I kind of, I... I have hard, I have a hard time accepting that, you know, not accepting, but more so like if I'm in a good position and I feel like I can juggle two things and two dual incomes, I'm going to do it. But with that, with that being said, you know, it was a good, good decision on my end, being able to transition to full-time MMA. Of course, that $50,000 bonus helped (laughs) for sure. Now, I I wanted to ask you too, you you get this, this fight against Mendonca here on June 3rd and in, you know, Mendonca does some of the same things as Santos does, and largely because they come from the same gym, right? They're the same kind of fighter. It seems like all those shoot-to-box guys have, have a lot in common. It, is that on your mind coming off of that fight with Santos, that, like, you, you kind of already got Mendonca's tricks here? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, to be honest, I think he probably feels the same way about me. You know, he's in the training room every single day with Daniel Santos, so I'm sure he thinks and his camp thinks that they have me figured out. Um, little do they know, you know, I was super sick that month that I fought Daniel Santos. And I think that on any other, any other healthy version of myself would have beat Daniel Santos. Um, but like I said, I guess we're going to find out on June 3rd. I think that I'm a pressure fighter, just like Daniel Santos is. I just couldn't keep up the pace with him that night because of my, you know, my uh, upper respiratory infection, but I'm healthy uh, my mindset is healthy. I'm in a lot better space. I'm, um, you know, I'm recovering like I should. I'm sleeping like I should, and and everything's coming along right. So, I guess we'll see June third, right? That's right. So, give me the prediction then. How does this one end, June third? I'm gonna press the pace. I'm gonna push the pace on him for sure. I'm gonna break him and I'm gonna submit him within, I'd say within two and a half. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This is Ben John Castaneda, who fights Matthews Mendonca at UFC Vegas 74. That fight once again, June 3rd. John, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much. Well, we have enjoyed that interview with John Castaneda. I once again have Daniel Gubby Freeland. Join now by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, uh, before we get to our combat countdown this week, I did want to talk about Mackenzie Dern. Because Mackenzie Dern, we, we had already pictured to win. We're not shocked she won, but how she won is a little bit surprising. She dazzles on the feet. She stuns Angela Hill and pieces her up. What did you think of the progression of Mackenzie Dern, and where does that put her in terms of the short list of contenders at 115? Yeah, it was – I. you cannot take anything away from that performance, uh, and her striking is something that has been – a evolving process, something that's been on the upswing and improving. Uh, so now we're, we're seeing the fruits of that labor. Do I think she could go in there and stand toe to toe with the very elites, uh, of striking? No, I, I actually still do not. I still, you know, taking out Angela Hill, I don't want to take away from it. We're two days away from that win, but 
when we're breaking down her next fight and like, here's a good question to you. Who might she face next? Do you think she asked for Rose Namajunas? I, I don't know where Rose Namajunas' headspace is, but like, I think that fight would make sense if Rose Namajunas is looking for a fight. Okay. So perfect example. I'm glad that's who we're thinking she might fight. It doesn't change my breakdown of her against Rose Namajunas. I still find Rose to be a better striker than her. I think Zhang Weili is still a way better striker than her. Where it does change my opinion, though, if she were to go against someone like Carla Esparza, a wrestle-heavy, very kind of one-two punch combo at at most, it becomes a little more interesting to me. So I am actually hard-pressed to answer the question. I don't want to take away from it. It's, it's a good sign, but I don't think she's the next Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. I don't think she's the next Joanna Young-Jacek. I don't think she's going to be lighting people up from here on out. I think it's just a, an improvement. What about yeah, you? and I I think you you hit the nail on the head with the with the Carlos Barza thing. I think it gives me hope when she fights somebody who's really grapple heavy. But the problem is 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 the top of the strawweight division just isn't that right? Like like Weili Zhang wants to box her head off. Like Rose Namajunas wants to kickbox from range or, or not throw any punches at all, like her last fight. But like you know, I mean, Lemos can can strike with you on the feet. Like Marina Hadiguez, who she already fought, you know, wants to box with you. Like a lot of these top fighters at straw weight right now do want to throw hands it might help her against like uh you know tatiana suarez coming back to 115 it could help her against somebody like that um you know it could help her against uh virna jandaroba who's supposed to fight Car- or, uh, tatiana suarez like it could help her against the grapplers but to, to your point like i still think she has a grappling advantage over the strikers and is also well behind them in terms of striking I love it. Well, I'll tell you what else I love. With no fights this week, we can't do fights, dogs, and parlays where we break down fights, give a couple of dogs and parlays to play. So we're going to break out of Mothballs, our other favorite segment on the show. It's the Combat Countdown, and this week we're going to be counting down the top five road to UFC prospects. Gumby, you're as hardcore an MMA nerd as there is. And anyone listening to this, if they're really going to sit down and listen to us break down our top five road to UFC prospects, they're probably balls deep in MMA nerdum too. But for the uninitiated, for the people who aren't as into these types of shows and prospects, describe road to UFC for the people. So right now, Road to the UFC is basically like the ultimate fighter without the house. Uh, they've got four weight classes this year. Uh, it's going to be flyweight, bantamweight, featherweight, and lightweight. Uh, and they are going to run eight-man tournaments over the course of the year. So we're going to get the quarterfinals of all of those divisions, as well as like a couple other sprinkled fights in there, um, you know, kind of like showcase fights for either people who have been on Road to the UFC in past years or – um, just in general, like some weight classes that they don't have tournaments of, like there's a welterweight fight going on uh, where they're trying to showcase somebody. So, uh, yeah, so it, it's a way to get more Asian fighters in the UFC with the Shanghai Performance Institute over there, and uh, it all gets kicking this weekend. Yeah, and what I love about the concept is you had me at hello with it's like tough, no house. I am of the mindset, <laughs> I've said it many times here on the show before, I am so sick of that tired frickin' concept, and what I've basically landed on is I don't think there should be a tough house. I think there should be 16 
tough houses. So what I would actually prefer, and I feel like I should be paying, the UFC should be paying me for this kind of consultative work. I would like them to just record people in their natural habitats, at their gyms, at their homes, and in their episode where they fight, we'll get to see that footage of them training, living, working there every day. And then, you know, on Friday night for every week for 16 weeks or 12 weeks, you get a fresh fight of these 16 people, however you want to do it, that are on the new tough. So anyway, that's my side rant. Road is a great start to that kind of uh, format. And I love that there's no house and no bullshit drama. So without further ado, let's get to Combat Countdown for Top 5 Road to UFC Prospects. But right before we do, does anyone sponsor it? Absolutely. Combat Countdown is brought to you by Game Up Hard Hydration. Welcome to Game Up Hard Hydration, the new ready-to-drink beverage with a sports drink flavor for adult drink fun. It comes in all your favorite sports drink flavors like orange lemon lime, fruit punch grape, and it hits all the right numbers at 110 calories, only one carb, it's gluten-free, and it's got no added sugar. So ask for Game Up wherever it is you buy beer, hard seltzer, and bring it on home for the team. Game Up. We love Game Up. Go get Game Up. Remember the name, Game Up. You're going to like the way it tastes. We guarantee it. Gumby, let's start with number five and our top five road to UFC prospects. And all these names are somewhat to moderate challenging, but we'll get through it. Topnoy Kiram. He's a 125-pounder out of Thailand. Yeah, so Tapnoi Kiram was on the 125-pound uh, season last time. He's actually not going to be in the tournament this time. He's just in one of those aforementioned showcase fights. But I think the UFC loves this dude because he's a real personality. And in terms of fighting skills, he probably wouldn't have made the top five on his own because he's a striker. He's really good with his Thai boxing, as you might expect from Thailand. His grappling defense has got a little room to grow, but man, dude, he was, after he won his first fight last year on the road to the UFC, somebody said they caught him smoking like a pack of cigarettes outside and, and the, like was accused of it afterwards. He's like, cigarettes are fun, uh, which is a hilarious soundbite for a press conference at a UFC fight. Um, I think the UFC knows that they've gotten a personality, so they set him up with a pretty winnable fight to start. He'll be a big favorite to start uh, his showcase fight here. Uh, and I think his striking is, is good enough to land him in the UFC. Our number four prospect to watch, Sangwon Kim, 145-pounder, South Korea is the home country. So actually, when I was uh, breaking down the 145-pound division of this one, I actually thought that he would be the favorite. Uh, and in his very first fight, where he's going to be fighting Kiyosuke Saku, uh, he's actually a 3-to-1 underdog, which is, is shocking to me. Uh, he's got really good wrestling basics, he's got great jiu-jitsu, and he does a really good job of putting together combos. And my favorite part about watching him fight, uh, and he'll be in the main event of this very first fight card, is he's a very long, lanky featherweight. He's going to have a five-inch height advantage over his opponent. I expect him to pick him apart. Um, and, and being a big dog, I'm not scared of it. So I put him right here on our list. Uh, our number three is Shuya Kamikubo, 135-pounder out of Japan. Yeah, I can pretty much uh, lump him and our number two together. I'm going to talk about two guys in a row 
who are out of Japan, who I love their wrestling. They're just absolute bulldogs when they get in there and get after it. Um, the only reason I have Kamakubo a little behind the one that I'm going to do next is I just think his striking hasn't evolved quite to the level yet, but he's a top-level wrestler. Um, he comes from a judo background, but then added wrestling on top of that. He's just going to wrestle everybody in the 135-pound division to death, which we saw last year out of a uh, really good prospect in the 155-pound division from Japan. They keep giving us surprisingly good wrestlers, and I think this is uh, one who should run through that division with ease. Let's stay in Japan for our number two prospect. As we climb towards the top, it's Shin Haraguchi, 155-pounder. Yeah, so I mentioned uh, I might as well just copy and paste that analysis. Shin Haraguchi, same guy uh, as we just talked about with Kamakubo, just better wrestling and a little bit better striking, too, because he, he comes from being a national team wrestler in Japan, uh, which, you know, when you're a national team wrestler and you're up against a lot of 155-pounders, especially in this tournament, that are that are mostly striking-based. Like, he, he's actually not going to run into a lot of guys with really good grappling apart from one or two. Uh, he, he should have such a massive advantage. And, you know, we saw, like I said last year in the lightweight division, one really good wrestler, even if he's maybe not polished everywhere else, should tear through these tournaments. All right, it's that time. It's our top prospect for the road to UFC pro- to top five prospects, road to UFC prospects, and here is number one. It's Mark Klimix Cow, 125 pound out of USA, uh, an AKA fighter, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. So yeah, it, he's a he's one of the very few ones in there who is not based in Asia, but his I believe both of his parents are from the Philippines. He himself lives in California, trains at AKA, which. You know, no offense to any of the training academies that these fighters are coming out of over in Asia, but it gives him a massive advantage. He's training with the best of the best. Javier Mendez always has his guys ready, and he has fought already some of the best prospects in America. He's fought Cody Davis and Miguel Sanson, who are a couple of LFA guys who are really, really tough. So he's fought all those guys, and he's passed those tests with flying colors. He himself has really good wrestling. He's compact. He's fast. He reminds me a lot of, like, some of the base-level stuff that Henry Cejudo does, obviously without the Olympic-level wrestling, but his combinations look like that on the feet, especially for a stocky guy. He's only 5'4 at flyweight, and he's only 25 years old, so working with the guys AKA, you're going to get the best version of him, and I think he dominates the 125-pound division. Boom. Let us know if you think we got this right. Let us know if we think you if you think we got this wrong, but I think that you think that we think that I think that you got to be pretty nerdy to be as into these guys as we are. So I'm very curious if we get any feedback on that. Gumby, we're having a party. Let's not let it stop. What should we do next? We're going to transition now to my interview with Mark Klamako, who is fighting at the road to the UFC, and he's going to be talking about this whole experience. We're going to get to that content for you right now. And joining me today is Mark Lamaco, who fights Jung Young Lee at Road to the UFC 1. That fight is on this Saturday, May 27th. So, Mark, I wanted to start here. You know, when you're looking at the Road to the UFC roster for this upcoming season, you're one of only two fighters, I noticed, who are not based in Asia and training in Asia. How has the travel and the time difference sort of affected you in, in getting out there and ready for the fight? Uh, yeah, so the first two days when I came in, a little bit i could definitely feel it i could definitely feel the the time change but as uh you know as time has gone on throughout the week you know I, i've done the right things uh to put myself in a position to to adjust and acclimate so 
I've been doing, I mean, a lot, I've got a lot, I've heard a lot of things from uh, teammates that I've had that have uh, competed overseas and did my own research as well on uh, hacks to, you know, beat the jet lag. And, you know, each day has been better and better. And I think for sure by the time fight day rolls around, I mean, even last night, I got a great night of sleep, woke up this morning feeling good and starting to really get on the time zone here. So really by Saturday, I'll be for sure good to go. Well, that's good to hear. Now, you you mentioned you've been out there for a few days. How long has your stay been so far in Shanghai? Uh, so it's Thursday morning here, and I've been here since I arrived Monday night. Okay, okay so a few days. Now, you, you also mentioned you got some advice from teammates. I, I know, obviously, you train at the Fame Day KA. Were you able to bring some of those trainers and some of those teammates with you? Who are you rolling with this weekend? Uh, no, no, no one from AKA is with me this weekend, but, uh, I have my good friend that he cornered with, with me for my last fight. Um, some my friend that I grew up training with a lot of experience. He knows me really well. So unfortunately, uh, no one from my team was able to come out with me, but, uh, regardless, I have someone that's with me that knows me well. And, you know, I know what I, I know what I need to do to win this fight. So regardless of who's with me or not, I know everything I need to do. I know my path to victory and uh you know i'm ready to go well that's great to hear now i, I did want to ask you a little bit about the tournament format because you know like mma tournaments are you know sort of ingrained in the sports dna this one's not a one-night tournament but it is a tournament nevertheless what what sort of sparked your interest and got you wanting to fight in this tournament other than obviously you know the ufc contract being on the line but what what made you want to take this path into the ufc um, so, you know, they, they, they came to us with this offer. They said, we can either do this or try to get us on a contender series. And I like the idea of, of the tournament. I like the, I like the fact that, you know, it's a for sure path to the contract. There's no, uh, you know, it's not dependent on, on how Dana White sees the fight. Um, you know, I've had people that I knew, you know, that went in there, had tough fights and, you know, unfortunately they didn't get the contract and it kind of put them in a tough place. So. I like the format of the tournament. Tournament, the way I see it, it's three extra fights of experience for me to get um, to get into the UFC. So it's a perfect, it's a perfect thing for me. I think, in my opinion, it's a perfect thing. I'm gonna tap into the Asian market, um, get my name out there, and yeah, like I said, get the experience, three fights, and then I get my for sure contract. And then by the time I get in the UFC, I make my official UFC debut. I'll be nice and seasoned. Absolutely. And you mentioned tapping into the Asian market. That's actually something I wanted to talk about because, you know, you're, you're from the U.S., you're born in the U.S., but both of your parents are from the Philippines. How, how important was that in your decision making to, you know, you're not in the Philippines, but being able to, you know, sort of go to Asia and showcase yourself where your parents are from? Yeah, that was a huge part of the motivation. You know, obviously, I have that background. Uh, I was born in America, but my national, uh, my, my, my blood is Filipino. And I would, you know, I, it's a huge opportunity to represent the Philippines and get the Philippines behind my back. And, uh, you know, put, put, you know, it's been a while since uh, the Philippines has had a, a top level prospect in the UFC. Um, so, you know, I look forward to, you know, working my way up to be the next Philippine star in the UFC. I love it. I love it. Now, let's talk about the fight itself, because you said... You know, you feel like you know what you need to do in this fight. And Jung Hyung Lee, from what we can tell from most of the fights I've seen of him, you know, he's a guy who likes to use his kicks, likes to keep his range. 
What, what were sort of your thoughts on him when you first got offered him as the opponent in the opening round? You know, he's a tough opponent. I, I look at it, you know, everyone, I'm not looking past anyone. Everyone that, that is here uh, knows what's at stake. So everyone's going to come in trying to win, putting it all into it. Uh, the way I see it is that, uh, yeah, from what I've seen, he, he likes to use his striking a lot. I haven't seen much of him from the ground. So I'm just looking to mix it up, uh, just really take the fight everywhere and uh, mix it up from the feet to the ground. Definitely going to go in there and try to test his ground game and see where that's at. And then uh, I think everything that I do, my striking will open up my wrestling, my grappling, and my grappling will open up my striking. So as long as I'm in there mixing it up, I feel like he won't be able to keep it up, keep up with me. I like that. Now, you, you mentioned to all of the fighters that were here because they're all there right now. Everybody who you could possibly fight throughout the tournament is, you know, at the same place at the same time. Is, is it hard not to, like, look around and start sizing people up? Naturally, you're going to do that. Yeah, naturally, you, you're going to do that. You see everyone that, you you know, you're, we're walking around. We're all in close proximity. We keep I – mean, I ran into my opponent plenty of times this week already. Ran into guys that, you know, I noticed that are in my bracket. But, you know, it's just – it's business right now. You know, we all know that uh, – we all know that we're in each other's crosshairs and that we could we could fight eventually, but ultimately I'm not I'm not too worried about that. I have to just focus on uh, what I have ahead of me this weekend, and that's all I'm focused on is just Young Hun Lee. Well, let's get the official prediction then. I usually like to end these things with a prediction. So, how does this one end? Come uh, May 27th. Uh, I just think I believe it ends wherever I need to. Wherever I need to, I feel like I can catch him either way. Don't be surprised if I stop him on the feet or if I stop him on the ground or if I just dominate him for three rounds straight like I, I'm prepared to do whatever I need to do to win um, I'm not going to make I don't have a specific prediction but I definitely feel like I can finish this fight wherever I need to finish it and no matter where it goes from the feet to the ground I feel like you know I'm ready to dominate and like I said I'm going to mix it up so it could it could be stopped anywhere well, you heard it here first, folks. This has been Mark Clamaco, who fights Jung Young Lee at Road to the UFC 1. That fight is on May 27th, bright and early in the morning here in the United States. Mark, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you, too. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We would not have a show without you guys. We also want to thank our sponsor, Game Up Hard Hydration. And remind you guys that you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Top Turtle MMA in both of those locations. And until next week, I'm David Gumby Freeland. He's Shockwave Dave Tremonte, and we will catch you then.